So every week I come up here and I tell you Pastor Pete is gone and he's gone for a couple more weeks. He will be returning in June. So I'm hoping you're enjoying this series that we're doing on world religions. Are you enjoying it? I have learned so much through this and I'm so grateful for Waco. And normally I tell you all about Waco, but this time I want Waco to tell you about Waco. So Waco, come on up. Welcome Waco. One of the things one of the things I've had a lot of questions on is what are the universities? She, she lost her mic. <laughs> Got it? Okay. They're asking what were the universities that you taught at? And Duke was one? I got my PhD, PhD at, at Duke. Duke. Um, I taught at uh, Alfred University in uh, rural western New York and uh, at Notre Dame of Maryland, which is a Catholic university in Baltimore. I'm also taught at several seminaries here and there. So my name's Waco Shannon Hickey, um, and I grew up in Napa. Uh, I went to college uh, at Berkeley. Uh, I worked initially as a reporter, and then I became a scholar. Uh, I also work as a chaplain, so uh, I moved back to Napa in 2018. Uh, I work as a hospice chaplain here in town and uh, I do a little bit of teaching where I can and I really like doing this kind of teaching because uh, there's no grades, there's no tests and people are here because they're interested. So uh, anyway, thank you very much for inviting me. Today uh, we're going to talk about Hinduism but let's begin by, uh, would you join me in standing and join me in the Lord's Prayer? So as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you very much. Uh, before we start talking about Hinduism, I'd like to just make a little comment about Pentecost, which for Christians <clears throat> is next weekend. But the, uh, the original Pentecost, you may know, uh, is actually a Jewish observance, and it's this year, it's tomorrow, and the day after, it's the Festival of Weeks. And uh, the, originally, Pentecost um, was the 50th day after Passover. So between Passover and uh, Shavuot, uh, which is the Festival of Weeks, is a 49-day period called the Omer, and uh, observant Jews actually count each day of that 49-day period until Shavuot, which is the uh, celebration. It's, an, it's a harvest festival. It's one of the three major pilgrimage festivals in Judaism, uh, and it is also when Jews celebrate uh, the reception of the Torah on Mount Sinai. So um, Christians later made uh, uh, the, the uh, Pentecost is observed 50 days after Easter. So I just want you to know that there's that kind of parallel between the traditions. Okay, so now we're gonna move on to talking about uh, Hinduism. And I saved the sort of meditative part of our uh, time uh, for this moment. Uh, 
So this, uh, what you see on a screen, is called the Gayatri Mantra, and it's a very uh, fundamental prayer. Uh, members of the priestly uh, class in uh, traditional Indian society, this is the first prayer that they learn as children, and they recite it at sunrise, um, and it's uh, often at the beginning of things. And it's a prayer to the creator, um, who is kind of, kind of in ancient Indian religion was imagined as the sun. So uh, it, it says, we meditate on the glory of the sun or the creator who has created the universe, who is worthy of worship, who is the embodiment of knowledge and light, who is the remover of all error and ignorance. May you enlighten our minds. And this is a modern rendering of it. So I invite you just to get uh, comfortable in your chair, but sit so that you can breathe uh, easily. And just, um, just absorb the sound. Bring your attention to your breathing. sound isn't just communicative it's actually generative and so mantras like this are understood to have uh, creative power there's not just about communicating something 
So that is the Gayatri Mantra. Uh, you can go to the next slide. And the one, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll stay there for a moment. So um, Hinduism or Hindu is actually an outsider term. It's a term that uh, Muslims, Persians, and the British used to kind of categorize a huge variety of practices, beliefs, uh, literature uh, throughout India. And uh, later, under British colonial rule, nationalists claimed the term Hindu as kind of national identity and um, used it to unify people against British rule. Uh, another term that sometimes people use is uh, Sanatada Dharma, which is the uh, eternal law or the eternal truth. So uh, let's go to the next slide. But uh, next slide, yeah, great. So the Indian uh, Supreme Court tried to kind of define Hinduism at a couple of points. And it characterized Hinduism as um, being based on acceptance and reverence for the Vedas, which is a large body of religious literature, ancient religious literature, and is understood to have been revealed. Um, and uh, a spirit of tolerance. And I put a little asterisk there because um, currently uh, the ruling party in India, the BJP, is a kind of a Hindu nationalist party, and they have not been particularly uh, characterized by tolerance. But generally, uh, Hindus in general uh, are pretty tolerant of uh, religious diversity. Uh, another characteristic is belief in vast cosmic periods of creation and destruction. So this is a very important difference between the Indian religions and Western religions, right? For Western religions, time is linear. It started with creation. It comes to a, a kind of a, a, an end point in the eschaton. Um, but it's a, it's a linear process, right? So in Indian thought, time is cyclical. And the universe comes into being, it exists for a while, it declines, it decays, it's destroyed, and then the whole process starts over again in these vast, vast cycles of millions and billions of years. Uh, uh, belief in reincarnation is another characteristic of Hindu thought. Uh, recognition of multiple paths to salvation and truth, so there isn't one right way. Um, polytheism, meaning multiple deities are honored and uh, philosophical flexibility. So there's no kind of fixed uh, dogma or teaching or set of beliefs that you could say characterizes all Hindus. Okay, next slide. Uh, Stephen Prothrow, who wrote this book that some of you are reading, um, which is, uh, he's got a chapter on Hinduism in here, and he sort of helpfully describes Hinduism as existing in uh, multiple layers. So the earliest layer of uh, Hinduism uh, begins in the Indus Valley civilization in the northern part of the Indian subcontinent. And uh, we don't actually know a whole lot about this civilization because we haven't figured out the language yet. But there are little there are images, coins, uh, bits of art, that kind of thing that uh, are suggestive of things that appear later in Indian history. So that's kind of the earliest layer. Then the next layer is Vedic religion. And it was practiced by a people called the Aryans, who called themselves the Aryans. 
and they were a, a group that settled in the northern part of the country. They seemed to have um, exerted some uh, power over the local Dravidian people who were indigenous to the area. And they were really interested in uh, ritual. And they were kind of a warlike group, it seems. A lot of their literature talks about conquering their enemies in battle and that sort of thing. But they particularly practiced a ritual called the fire ceremony, which I'm going to say more about in a minute. And uh, then the next layer is kind of philosophical Hinduism. And I've got some dates here. And how many of you are familiar with the, the expression BCE? A few of you, what does it mean? Before the common era. Before the common era. And why do we say before the common era instead of before Christ? Be because yes, not, all of, not everybody's Christian. So this is a kind of a neutral way to talk about uh, the common, our common uh, calendar. So philosophical Hinduism begins to develop uh, between the 10th and the 3rd century before the Common Era. And uh, the literature that is uh, emerging at this time is called the Upanishads, they're philosophical texts. And what's happening during this time is a lot of people are, um, the Upanishads kind of reinterpret the ritual of the fire ceremony, which is an external ritual, as an internal spiritual process. And a lot of people begin to kind of drop out of society and uh, begin to sort of seek spiritual liberation. And the Buddha was one of those people, actually. So he uh, lived during this period, and he was one of those folks who dropped out of society and went off into the forest to practice yoga um, to see if he could so solve the question, the spiritual question that animated him, which was about the cause of suffering. The, the uh, next layer is devotional Hinduism, and it's based on great Hindu epics, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, um, a body of literature called the Puranas, which talk about um, the activities of the gods, stories about the gods. And uh, it is characterized by bhakti, or devotion. And I think that's going to uh, make a lot of sense to you as we go along. So um, let's see, let's go to the next slide. In Vedic religion, in this early layer of Vedic religion, they practiced a fire ceremony. They understood their gods as most of their gods had to do with qualities of light. So Agni is the god of fire. And Agni is itself a god. Agni is a god, but also the messenger of the gods because it's through the medium of fire that things that are offered to the gods ascend to the heavens. Indra is a god of thunder and lightning. Ushas is the god of dawn. Surya is the sun god uh, referred to in the Gayatri mantra that you heard earlier. And the priests uh, who did the fire ceremony would take a psychoactive substance called soma, and they would uh, ritually construct a fire and they would offer things into the fire uh, associated with mantras or utterances like the Gayatri mantra that you heard. And, um, and they understood that if they did the ritual properly and said the mantras correctly and did everything uh, kind of just so, the gods had to respond. So human ritual activity was understood as necessary 
to kind of maintaining the order of the universe. So humans and gods were involved in this way, kind of simultaneously in maintaining the order of the universe. And karma, the term karma, initially meant, originally it meant ritual action. Later, in conversation with Buddhism, it comes to mean moral action. But the earliest meaning of karma is ritual action. So the priestly class were to do rituals that would then kind of as I say, keep the order of things going and relations with the gods copacetic. Let's go to the next slide. <coughs> I'm sorry, excuse me. I don't want to cough in this. All right, so here is an image of a fire sacrifice in uh, modern Atlanta. And I don't know how well you can see it here, but uh, here is this little thing here is a fire pit. It's built up of uh, bricks and there's a fire in the center and there are here's a priest and another priest and another priest and they are gathered around here and each of them has a particular function in the ritual uh, and uh, it, you'll see the slides when you get them by email later. You'll notice that these priests are each wearing a thread over their left shoulder. Um, and I'll explain in a minute what that's about. But this fire ceremony, these are still performed. This is a Hindu temple in Atlanta. And uh, again, things are offered into the fire uh, up to the gods. Let's go to the next slide. So Vedic society was organized into four major social strata or classes. At the top were the Brahmins, the priests. And their job was to do these rituals. And one of the films that I, uh, actually one of the films that I recommended to you in the resource list shows uh, a fire ceremony and maybe the last time it was actually performed. Uh, but, the, but that's the function of the priests and priests, the members of the Brahmin class are also often teachers and that kind of thing. The next category is the warrior class, the ruling class. And the Buddha was born into this class. Um, so was Mahavira, the founder of the Jain tradition. The next class are the Vaishyas. They are merchants, artisans, kind of common folks. And these upper three uh, categories, all of those members of those groups were allowed to study the Vedas. And so when they were initiated as children into the study of the Vedas, they went through a ceremony where they got this sacred thread. All right, now anybody can study the Vedas. You can go online and find them yourself. But this is, I'm talking about traditional Indian society and I'm talking about men, right? Uh, really, this is about men. So the next uh, category uh, are the Shudras. Uh, slaves or servants, they were the non-Aryan indigenous people of the Indus Valley. And then outside the system at all are the uh, Dalits, or who, what Gandhi called the Harajans, the children of God, um, who were considered to be untouchable because they, they did occupations that were considered unclean. And you're born into one of these categories, and that's it. You're in that category for your life. You don't change categories. Um, and so uh, although discrimination against Dalits uh, has been outlawed since the Indian constitution was established in 1948, discrimination against them uh, persists. Let's go to the next one. 
the, I, I think something that's actually, let's go back. If we can do that, is that possible? Yeah. I think it's important to say about this that Indian society uh, in this system, they value order, right? They understand that the universe is orderly and everything kind of has a place. And so your responsibility uh, is to do your duty within whatever category you're born, right? And you do your duty within that category, you do the best you can, and then perhaps uh, ultimately in your next life you'll have a better rebirth. Uh, of course, the pinnacle of this system was understood to be Brahmin men. Of course, they're the ones who invented it, so that makes sense. All right, let's go on. Uh, oh, back one? Yeah, thank you. So uh, life has various stages, and the four stages of life are first, you start out as a student. Uh, you might be, if you're a Brahmin, you might begin studying the, um, the Vedas, and you might learn, for example, the Gayatri Mantra and begin to learn how to do the ceremonies that are important to your trade. Uh, you might apprentice yourself to someone and, and learn a, a craft. Uh, when you're old enough to be married and raise your own family, then you enter the householder stage and you work, you know, and support your family. And by the time uh, your children are old enough to start their own families, then you're kind of moving into retirement age and you can begin to sort of think about more philosophical things. Um, and the ultimate, uh, the ultimate goal of life uh, is to, uh, well, well, we'll say to achieve moksha, and I'll say more in a minute about what that means. Um, and so some people drop out of society either after retirement or even earlier in their life, and they devote themselves totally to the spiritual path. So, as I said, the Buddha was such a person. Let's go on. And there are various goals of life that are all reasonable. So uh, one is pleasure. There's nothing wrong with a good meal and a good time, you know, good friends, and nice glass of wine. There's nothing wrong with enjoying your life. Uh, there's also nothing wrong with success, artha, success. Uh, so those are perfectly reasonable, legitimate goals earlier in your life. At all points, you should be doing your duty you should be uh, living appropriately as a member of your family and as a member of society. And the ultimate goal, as I said, is spiritual liberation. And we'll say more about that in a moment. Let's go on. So we're moving now from the Vedic layer of Hinduism to the kind of philosophical layer. And there are some ideas that are important here. So the first idea is that uh, God is understood as kind of the ultimate ground of being. And it is beyond Brahman, it's called Brahman. And uh, it is beyond anything that we can imagine or conceptualize or describe. But this ultimate reality manifests itself as the material world that we all live in. Right, so the universe is actually God just playing and, and coming into being for the sheer joy of being. And uh, at the same time, the universe is orderly and uh, it's governed by natural laws and by kind of natural principles. 
Um, and it exists in time, happens in these cycles of, of birth, death, rebirth, re-death. So as the Upanishads began to be developed, there developed this idea that uh, the cycle of samsara, birth, death, and rebirth, is actually kind of a problem. And it's not that rebirth is so bad, but death is not a lot of fun, right? And so people wanted to kind of get out of the cycle of birth, death, rebirth, re-death. That becomes the goal, the spiritual goal. Uh, another important idea is the idea of the Atman, or the soul, you might say. That's the essence of the person that transmigrates from lifetime to lifetime and is reborn. Buddhism denies that there is any such thing. It says, Buddhism says that it's all process. There isn't any kind of essence or core at the bottom that is like the self or the soul. But <clears throat> Hindu thought says that there's this individual self or soul that is blinded by illusion and desire and ignorance about the nature of reality, driven by karma, um, and caught and stuck in this cycle of samsara. And so the goal uh, is to achieve spiritual liberation or moksha. And the way to do that, or one way to do that, I'm greatly, greatly oversimplifying a huge amount of philosophical complexity. So please just be aware that I am really oversimplifying things. But one way to achieve moksha is to realize the inseparability, the indivisibility, in fact, the identity of your own individual soul and that of God. Your soul and Brahman are the same, right? And there are various ways to do this. So next slide. There's different paths uh, to God because people have different kinds of spiritual inclinations. And these paths are yogas or disciplines. And there are different kinds of yoga. So jnana yoga is the path of philosophy, uh, knowledge, inquiry, philosophical inquiry for people who are philosophically inclined. And one exemplar of that was Shankara, who was an eighth century philosopher who developed some of the philosophy that I'm uh, inadequately describing to you. Raja yoga is for people who are contemplatively inclined, right? So it's the path of meditation. And uh, one exemplar of that was Swami Vivekananda, who came to the United States in 1893 to the World Parliament of Religions and toured the country giving lectures and founded the Vedanta Society in the United States, which still exists. Another path is karma yoga, the path of selfless action action done as devotion to God without any attachment to the fruits or the rewards of that action. Karma yoga, and one exemplar of that path is Mahatma Gandhi, who uh, did what he did, not for power uh, or personal success, but uh, for his people and selflessly. And the last path uh, is the path of bhakti, of devotion. And uh, this is the path of cultivating love for God so that so comprehensively that you see God everywhere. And as I was listening um, 
to uh, Jennifer's beautiful singing and this, particularly that song, Beautiful One, that I adore. You know, that's the spirit of, of bhakti, this love for God, except that God is, is everywhere and in everything. And so the path of bhakti is ultimately to see God and encounter God everywhere and in everything. The yogas um, are not just physical postures. That's what we tend to think of when we think about yoga, right? We think of going to a yoga class and stretching. But actually, uh, the yogas are much more comprehensive than that. So, and the next slide. Uh, they were systematized by a philosopher named Patanjali around the third century before the common era. Go back. Thank you. Um, and they have kind of eight elements. So as with Buddhism, the foundation is moral, morality, moral conduct, ethical behavior. Uh, next is physical conditioning, those postures that you are familiar with from yoga class. Breath control, which is an aspect of the physical conditioning. Controlling your senses. Developing meditative concentration. And then eventually developing really deep states of meditation, uh, meditative absorption called samadhi. So all of these elements are uh, aspects of yoga and yogic philosophy. Uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about the moral codes. Next slide. So the moral codes are the yamas and the niyamas. So they are personal disciplines and social disciplines. The social disciplines are non-harming, ahimsa, non-violence, non-lying, so truthfulness, non-stealing, uh, restraint, uh, chastity, uh, avoiding dissipating your energy in any kind of uh, frivolous way. Uh, you could call it, uh, uh, it's not just chastity, but uh, continence, you know, kind of restraining your energies. Uh, and non-greed or generosity. The personal disciplines are purity, physical and mental, contentment, self-discipline, self-study, and uh, surrender or humility kind of getting over yourself. And I want to say that I think having studied multiple religions, uh, and they are, all of them are capable of great harm as well as great good. And I think that at their best, religions are fundamentally about getting over yourself, right? And they have various ways of helping us do that. Okay, let's go to the next slide. So bhakti yoga, which is the, the most recent layer, um, is centered on worship of God. And there are kind of major categories. Uh, again, I'm oversimplifying hugely, but there are people who are devoted to the god Vishnu, who is the preserver, uh, and his various avatars. He has 10 of them. Hindus consider Buddha to be one of them, actually. Uh, Shaivites who are devotees of Shiva and Shaktas who are devotees of the goddess or Devi in her various incarnations. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, so the deities that people honor, they can be regional, they can be local, your family could have a patron deity, or you may have a personal 
connection to one deity or another. Um, it's not exclusive. So Brahman, the ultimate reality, right, which is beyond conception, manifests itself as all of the deities as well as the material world, right? So uh, it doesn't matter really what form or forms you worship God in. It's all God ultimately. And some of these major deities have a lot of different uh, manifestations. And they may be local, there are local variations as well. So a lot of complexity. Um, and the sources of information about these deities come from the great epics, they come from the Puranas, which are stories about the gods and their deeds. So uh, let's go on. The basic practice of um, bhakti yoga, devotional yoga, is puja or worship. And it's it's like, uh, the best way to think about it perhaps is as if you were inviting God into your home, right? If, you, if God or if Jesus or, God, or Jesus showed up at your door and you recognized that it was Jesus, you would probably welcome him in and treat him as an honored guest, right? You'd maybe, uh, you'd offer him a bath if he needed if he, to get the dust of the road off his feet and you'd probably bring him out the best food and drink you had and uh, you would probably be very happy to welcome him into your home. So puja is really that kind of practice. It's the practice of welcoming and inviting God into your home. And it's important to understand that the deities that you see in Hindu temples, they're not, you know, they're conceived often by um, members of, the, of Western religions as idols. But you could think of them more as windows. They're a window into God, right? And through that window, you can encounter God. And the aim of puja is actually darshan. It is to see and be seen by God. Um, and so you go to a temple for darshan to have this experience of seeing and being seen by God. And to be fully seen by God is both um, kind of a wonderful, but also a sort of a vulnerable experience, perhaps, right? Because we're seen in our completeness, but accepted. So puja is the practice of welcoming the deity in, and these murti is what they're called. Murti are kind of the means by which you do it. And the murti are uh, bathed and given offerings and dressed in fine garments and jewels and that kind of thing, given uh, offered light, offered prayers and music, offered food. And at the end of the ceremony, the food, which has been blessed by its, its uh, encounter with the deity, is then distributed to people and, and, uh, and eaten. It's called prasad. Now, I had a little film for you in which Hindu people are describing this for themselves, but the uh, tech demon got to us this morning. And so the film is not working, but we're going to try. I, I'm, uh, it's about a minute and a half, and I've seen it so many times that I could probably do it from memory. See if you can uh, slide along to an image here. Let's, let's get a scroll forward just a little bit.
Okay. So you know, what you do is you set up a, a shrine, and it can be any place in your house, um, but it should be a clean place. And you prepare a table, and you can see that there are images here, and some of them are photographs, um, of, uh, and some of them are artistic renderings of deities. And there's flowers and food and other kinds of things offered there. This is an example of a home shrine. Let's go see if we can find it. Yeah, here's another one that's on the top of a filing cabinet, right? So it doesn't have to be fancy. And this person has a variety of different images that are meaningful. Let's go for a little bit. Um, and this woman, go ahead, you can keep going. So um, here's a person who has a bowl, I think, of flowers that he's about to offer uh, to the deity. Go ahead. And she is uh, offering fire. Okay, this is Arti. She's offering uh, flame. And a flame is waved before the deities. And the flame is also carried around among the people, and they kind of uh, wave as if they're bringing it to themselves. Okay, let's see if we can go forward a little bit. Uh, we just saw some, uh, oh yes, here's music. We, we saw some bananas, we saw some food. Um, she is singing a devotional song, perhaps, to a drum. Uh, bells are played, so it's multi-sensory, right? All of your senses are involved. There's fragrance and sight and sound and taste and touch. It's all uh, very uh, sensory. Okay, let's go forward. Yeah, there was a, some uh, food there. Okay, we can... That's, a, that's an offering, and these foods, having been offered to the god, will then be distributed to people as prasad, as blessed food. So thank you very much for indulging me. So let me show you just a few of the deities very quickly. Let me go back to the slides. Here's Ganesh. Ganesh is the elephant-headed god. Uh, he is the son of Shiva and Parvati. Um, and the reason that he is always uh, uh, honored first is that uh, he won a race. So all of the uh, deities, they all have some animal that they ride upon, some vehicle that they ride upon. And uh, Ganesh's vehicle is a mouse. And all of the deities were going to have a race to figure out who would be worshipped first. Uh, and the, the race was whoever uh, manages to go around the earth and come back first, fastest, will be the first to be honored. And Ganesh is feeling pretty forlorn because he, he's got this mouse, right? And there's a bull and somebody else has got a winged thing and, you know, everybody's off to the, off and running. But then he realizes that uh, his mother uh, is the earth. And so he hops on his mouse and he circumambulates his mother and he wins the race. So he's always honored at the first end. He is the remover of obstacles. Um, and uh, I didn't know anything about Darshan personally, but I went with a colleague to visit a Hindu temple uh, where they were honoring Ganesh on his birthday. And I walked in and I saw this image of Ganesh that was uh, surrounded with, you know, covered with garlands and silks and all of that. And I took one look at it and I literally dropped to my knees in tears. 
because I felt suddenly held in this utterly compassionate gaze. It was overwhelming. But that's darshan, right? And it's experiences like that in places like a Hindu temple that show me that God is bigger than our ideas of God, and God can meet us anywhere. Okay, let's go to the next one. These are Shiva and Parvati. Um, Shiva is kind of a, he's an ascetic. Uh, he likes to meditate in the mountains. He's associated with a trident. Um, devotees of Shiva usually have three, paint three stripes across their forehead as a mark of their devotion. Um, and Parvati is his consort. So all of the deities have kind of male and female aspects. Uh, you might be familiar with this image of the dancing Shiva who is dancing the dance of creation and destruction and trampling the demon of evil underfoot. Next. This is Vishnu. He's the preserver. And I guess this image of Lakshmi and uh, Vishnu are a little hard to see. I tried to bring you a two-dimensional image and a three-dimensional image. Lakshmi is a goddess of fortune, and she is honored at the festival of Diwali, um, which is a lovely festival of lights in India. Uh, next, we have Krishna. Uh, and Krishna is an avatar or an incarnation of Vishnu. Um, in this uh, one image where he's all uh, decked out, he's playing a flute. Uh, he's covered with garlands and jewels. And if you go to a temple, you'll see the deities being dressed in this kind of way. And in the next image, he is, um, uh, he's usually depicted as dark blue or black. This is a black Krishna with his consort Radha. Next, here's Brahma. Brahma is the creator, but he's actually, he's done his job. So he, he's actually not a, a particular focus of worship. He is understood to have kind of brought things into being, and now he's kind of sitting back and, and watching how things are going. He's holding a copy of the Vedas in his hands. Uh, and next, Saraswati is the goddess of learning uh, and music. She's carrying a musical instrument. She's associated with swans. Um, there's a three-dimensional image, and you can see that little flowers have been offered to her, and she's got a little bit of red powder on her forehead that has been uh, offered as a blessing. Next. These are two other images of the goddess, and they are kind of fierce images. Durga is a very fierce warrior goddess who defeated a demon that nobody else could defeat. She's riding a lion. And then there's Kali, who has both a, she has a kind of a terrifying aspect and a, a kind of a motherly aspect. She's got both. And she's trampling uh, ignorance. That's her job. And uh, if you've ever had, uh, if you've ever had or been uh, a fierce mama uh, on behalf of somebody that you loved and wanted to protect, you'll understand the energy of Kali. Next. And these are uh, Rama, who is another avatar of Vishnu, uh, his wife Sita, and Hanuman, the monkey god, and they are the heroes of the Hindu epic, the Ramayana. So just a tiny little bit of, as I say, this much of Hinduism. I think that uh, Stephen Prothero does a pretty good job of covering a fair amount of diversity in a pretty simple way, accessible way, so I encourage you to take a look uh, at that book. 
And I want to close uh, with another uh, mantra, a devotional chant. And this one uh, is, it's Om Namo, Om Namo, meaning homage, Om Homage, to the Blessed One, Bhagavate, <laughs> Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Uh, Vasudevaya is a word for God. So the meaning of this chant is hail to the blessed one, God. And uh, I just want you to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step off the stage and I just want you to enjoy it. So thank you very much and go ahead.
Wasn't that beautiful? So calming. So, hope you guys all enjoyed the service today. Thank you, Waco, for a beautiful message. Uh, it's amazing. I always thought of them as gods, not deities. So it's kind of like, oh, wait, and a window to God is a very interesting way to look at that. So thank you all for coming. I hope you plan on coming back next week and joining us. And um, we're going to be teaching on the book of Acts and the birth of the church. So come and learn all about that. Um, it'll be an interesting service. I'm sure we're going to share lots of things going on. So uh, plan on being here for that. And go have a great week. Go be Jesus. <laughs>